0: Good morning, Tri-City Church. Please, you can have a seat. I want to welcome you here on this Good Friday, which we uh, celebrate the death of Jesus. Uh, My name is David, and I uh, lead the youth ministry here uh, at the church. I want to welcome you here, especially kids, if you're here. I hope you have your coloring packs uh, there. If you don't, you can grab one uh, outside. We're going to be continuing uh, looking at the story of Jesus' death uh, today. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 23. Uh, We'll be working in verse uh, 44. Uh, today, But before we do that, uh, let me pray, and then we will jump into our text uh, together. Uh, Father, we come uh, to you today on this uh, Friday, uh, a Friday that is uh, to be remembered uh, because of what uh, you did on that day. Uh, we come uh, with busy weeks uh, behind us and lots of things on our mind. And so we pray now as we uh, look to you and to your word, uh, would you quiet our hearts and our minds, that we might focus on you. We might see all that you have done for us, and might we leave here uh, worshiping you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to begin just with a 19th century hymn uh, that I found. I was reading through some things. It's called uh, Sorrow or Joy. Uh, and, and this uh, hymn tries to paint some of the tension that I think we feel on Good Friday. Uh, the hymn uh, begins this way It says, It is finished. Shall we raise songs of sorrow or of praise? And that's kind of the question of Good Friday for us today. We, we, we look and we see Jesus crucified, beaten, mocked, and scorned, and we, we sense that we should feel sad. There should be sorrow that our King and our Savior has died. And yet, at the same time, we also know what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and that should lead us to praise. So, which is it, sorrow or praise? What we see as we read through our text today is that we actually see both. Uh, We see people in great sorrow, but we also see uh, one man who praises in the midst of this sorrow. And that's what I want to focus our attention on uh, today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read through the whole text and then zero in just on one uh, verse. So uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 44. Uh, If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up there on the screen. Uh, This is kind of, uh, we've heard of Jesus uh, being kind of uh, condemned by the religious leaders. And then we also heard of him being condemned by Pilate. After this, Jesus uh, takes his cross. He is nailed to it, uh, a sign over his head that says, King of the Jews. Uh, And then Jesus here uh, is about to die. In verse 44, it says, It was about the sixth hour, so about noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And so we see here in the death of Jesus, it seems that the whole cosmos, in a way, is responding to the death of Christ. Uh, There's darkness in the sky. The curtain of the temple separating the most holy place from people tears in two. Uh, Those who had assembled, the crowds go home beating their breasts in sorrow. And Jesus' closest disciples seem shocked, bewildered, just standing at a distance. But in the midst of this, there's one guy. One guy who in the midst of the great sorrow seems to praise God. And that's a centurion. A Roman soldier stationed at the foot of the cross. Let's read what it says about him again in verse 47. It says, Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And so, all I want to do for our time together today is, is look at w- what does it mean for Jesus to be innocent, and why should that matter for us now? What does it mean for Jesus to be innocent? Why does that matter for us now? And why, like the centurion, should we praise God because of it? Uh, if you're taking notes, there's three points. Uh, the first point is this, uh, the nature of Jesus innocence. Uh, the centurion, he saw the signs in the sky. He saw Jesus suffering there. Maybe he had been there when Pilate condemned him. We don't know. But there was something about Jesus, the way he died, that he, he, he knew this man was certainly innocent. We know a little bit more than the centurion does. The Bible gives us a lot of information about Jesus and his life. And so we know a lot about what Jesus' innocence was like. And so I want to give you 3 subpoints, three things we know about Jesus' innocence. Uh, the first is this, that Jesus' innocence was a continual innocence. A continual innocence. What I mean by that is that it wasn't just that Jesus was innocent of the crimes he was being crucified for. It, it wasn't just that he was innocent in this moment. Jesus' whole life was one of innocence. From his birth until his death, Jesus was innocent. He had committed no crimes, no sin in all of his life. Yet, the crazy thing is, he was tempted just like you and me are. In Hebrews 4, uh, it says this, For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So you and I know the temptation of living life, and we know that temptations come and cause us to sin, and yet Jesus, he experienced all of these temptations from his birth to his death, and he never sinned. So kids, if, you, if you're here, you know the temptation of not wanting to obey your parents, right? If, if, if you're a teenager, you know the temptation of wanting to fit in and maybe sideline some of the things you know are right. Jesus felt all of those things. Even as he grew up and his ministry continued, people mocked him. People thought he was crazy. And here at the crucifixion, you can imagine the temptation Jesus is feeling. He has all the power in the world. He can do anything to the people who are hitting him, spitting on his face. And yet there's no hint of bitterness or anger or scorn. See, Jesus, his whole life from birth to death was one of innocence. So Jesus' life was, uh, innocence was continual, but it was also complete. His complete innocence. Uh, See, Jesus abstained from every form of evil. Uh, He never lied. He never twisted the truth. He was never selfish or greedy. He never coveted. He never wanted to hurt anyone else. He, He abstained from every evil that could have been done. He never did. But it's not just that. Because it wasn't just that he didn't do evil. Every good that he should have done, he did. That's sometimes where we struggle. We say, oh, I I haven't done so and so and so, but have we done all the good that God has required of us? Jesus did. He always gave to the needy. He always showed compassion. He always showed every patience that was necessary. He always honored his father and mother. He always sought first God's kingdom. He always had compassion on those in need. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that Jesus' actions were completely innocent. Jesus' thoughts were completely innocent. Right? You and I, we can kind of look righteous on the outside. We can look good to other people by our actions. But inside, we can be boiling with anger, with pride, with lust. But that was not Jesus. It was not just that his actions were innocent. All of his thoughts were innocent. There was no unrighteous anger in his mind. No thinking about lustful thoughts. No pride. But perfect humility. Humility. So his innocence was complete. But his innocence was also certain. Uh, The the centurion said, certainly this man is innocent. There was no doubt about his innocence. Not for the centurion and not for anybody in Jesus' life. Even his enemies. They all knew he was innocent. We we just heard, read about the religious leaders condemning Jesus. When they condemn him, it's not because of anything he's done. They bring forward false witnesses. People who come and lie and give testimony about things Jesus hasn't done so that they can condemn him. Because even though they know they got nothing on Jesus, they they have nothing to condemn him with. Even Pilate, when Jesus comes and he investigates uh, Jesus' life, he he says, You know what? I find no guilt in this man. And even Judas, Judas, the, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, he knows that Jesus is innocent. Look at Matthew 27. Judas, after he has betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he comes to his senses and this is what it says. It says, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. So, even Judas, he came to realize this is an innocent man I have betrayed. Jesus is innocent. See, nothing in all of the world will ever be as blameless, as pure, as Jesus was morally. N- nothing in the cosmos can compare. We mean, there's, there's, we try to have pure things here in our world, like pure gold. You can't ever have pure gold. You can have gold that's 99.999% pure, but there's always some impurity. There's always some imperfection, even when you get down to the microscopic scale, you see the impurities and the imperfections. Or you think about it uh, like if you've ever done any Renos and you have a wall that you want to paint, it's maybe a black wall and you want to paint it white, so you put on the primer, you put coat after coat of white paint, trying to cover up all the black, and after four or five coats, however many it takes you, you can finally stand back and you can look at the wall and you say, that is a white wall. That is great. It looks awesome until you get close to it. The closer you get to the wall, when you get really close, you start to see the imperfections. You you start to see some drips of paint. You see that your lines weren't perfect. You you see the imperfections when you get close. And and it's even like that with people. When you meet somebody sometimes for the first time, you, you, you get to know them a bit, and you're like, well, this person's awesome. They're amazing. But then what happens? You get to know them a little bit more. And then you realize, there's some faults. The closer you get to someone, you start to see the faults in them, right? That's why we know the faults most in our family, because we're really close. But here's the thing. It's not like that with Jesus. The closer and closer you get to Jesus, the more and more innocent he is. The more and more perfect he is. When you examine him down to the microscopic level of his works, of his person, of his teaching, he's innocent. It's hard for us to kind of sometimes fully grasp this idea, I think, because the people we interact with all the time, they're flawed. And so to try and imagine somebody who would interact with us in perfect patience and kindness and humility, it's kind of like trying to imagine a color you've never seen before. You're just kind of like, How, I, I don't really know what that would actually look like. To imagine Jesus in perfect innocence around us. Uh, but here's the thing. This life of perfect innocence that Jesus has lived, uh, this is actually the life that you and I were supposed to live. You see, God created us to live this life of innocence, and yet none of us have. None of us do. That's, wh- that's why Jesus had to come and live it, because you and I can't live that life. Somebody had to live this perfect life, this innocent life. And I think what happens is we live our life and we start to look around at the people beside us, the Christians around us, and we say, well, I'm doing pretty good, right? Like above average, I would say, maybe top 10%, you know? <laughs> like l- I'm doing pretty well. But when we compare our life to Jesus, when, when we see the high bar that he sets of perfect innocence, man, it kills any self-righteousness we have. There's, there's none we can have be, because it's Jesus, right? Like, we think that we're doing high jump and the bar's here, but actually it's pole vault and the bar is way up here. <laughs> right, Jesus sets a very high bar of what our life is actually supposed to look like. Our problem is that we think we're kind of innocent or mostly good because we compare ourselves to the sinners that are around us. But we are really, we're kind of like a three-year-old. A three-year-old who, who draws a picture and thinks it's pretty good. And they start to compare it to the other three-year-olds who are also drawing. And they're like, I'm the best artist ever. This is amazing. Mom and dad, don't you see? But like, I don't, I don't care how good your three-year-old drawing is. It is nothing compared to a Rembrandt. Our life is nothing compared to Jesus' life. It should kill any self-righteousness. Any sense that we are actually good on our own. It kills it when we compare our life to what Jesus lived. We are just a three-year-old scribble. So, do you see your life like that? Do you see your life in comparison to everybody else around you, better than average? Or do you compare yourself to the perfect, innocent life of Jesus? Because that's the standard God's given us. And if we compare ourselves to the people around us, yeah, we're going to think we're pretty great. But really, our self-righteousness will die when we compare ourselves to the one who was truly great, Jesus. So, the centurion is right. Jesus was innocent. He lived a life of continual, complete, and certain obedience. So here's the question. Why wasn't he treated like that? Why was the man who was innocent hung on a cross? It wasn't because he was guilty. He was innocent. And it wasn't because he was forced to either. Because Jesus says, you know what? No one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. See, Jesus volunteered for the cross. He wasn't forced. So why did an innocent man get punished? Well, the answer is this. An innocent man was punished so that the greatest exchange ever could take place. And that brings us to our second point. The transfer of Jesus' innocence. The transfer of Jesus' innocence. See, the centurion saw the things that had happened. He saw that the sky was darkened. He saw Jesus' sufferings. He saw these signs. The, the temple curtain being torn into the, the light, uh, the, the sun darkening. What was that pointing towards, though? The things that he saw, that there was something bigger going on that he didn't see. And there, there was something spiritually significant that the signs were pointing to. And it was this. That the judgment we deserve, because we have not lived that perfect life, on the cross was put on Jesus. And Jesus' perfect, innocent, righteous life was transferred to us. He took our guilt. We get his Righteousness. It's best summed up in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, For our sake, he, that is God, made him Jesus. He made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A perfectly innocent Jesus who knew no sin, took on our sin, our punishment, so that we might become the righteousness that he had lived. Not that we're actually righteous. Kids, if, if you know your parents, you know they're not actually innocent. They're actually sinners too, right? An amen from a kid? Somebody said yes. <laughs> we know that we're not actually righteous. But the wonderful thing is that we're seen as righteous by God. We're here as sinners and Jesus, his life, it covers us such that when God sees us, he sees the innocent, perfect life of Jesus. It's, it's this great exchange, this great transfer of Jesus' perfect life unto us. In Isaiah 53, uh, 11, it talks about uh, Jesus here. It says, uh, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So, so the righteous one will make many to be accounted righteous. They're not actually righteous, but they be credited as righteous, he will bear their iniquities. And so we are clothed now in Jesus' righteousness, not the, 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 the filthy rags we had before, but clothed in the righteousness of, of Christ. And therefore, we are given the benefits of Jesus' perfect, innocent life. We've gone from a balance owing in the bank to being in the black. Right? We, we, the criminal record gets wiped out, and we get a Medal of Honor instead. Uh, This is most well illustrated uh, by what just happened a few hours before Jesus' death with the story of Barabbas. We heard some of it read uh, today. Barabbas was a a man who was convicted for insurrection and for murder. Uh, He had been uh, locked up in prison and was probably going to be crucified. Uh, Dave Furman is a pastor in Dubai, and he wrote a small pamphlet called When God Stands in Your Place, and he describes the story from Barabbas' point of view. You can imagine that Barabbas was there on that day, locked up in prison. The guards uh, come and unlock him, say, come with me. He doesn't know where he's going, but he hears in the distance the the chanting of crowds. As he gets closer, he realizes that crowds are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. He knows he's done wrong, and he knows that maybe now his time has come. As he gets closer, though, he realizes that the crowds are not chanting crucify at him. They're shouting it at Jesus. And Jesus, in that moment, Pilate has the option, do I release Barabbas or Jesus? The guilty man or the innocent one? And in that moment, the, the guilty man, Barabbas, is let go free. The innocent man, Jesus, is crucified. And you you see the exchange that happens there. That that the one who is innocent is given the benefit, or the one who's guilty is given the benefits of the innocent. The one who's innocent takes on the punishment of the guilty. We are Barabbas. We have all the benefits of Christ, that we've not earned it or done anything on our own. And Christ, he takes all of our punishment and all the things that we deserve so that we can go free. And if we understand this, if, it, if this gets down into our core, then, then it is going to change the way that we relate to God. Because our righteousness is not based on anything we do. We can't come to God and say, yeah, I voted for the right political party. I supported the right social causes. We can't even come to God and say, I know all of this theology. I've had all these emotions and spiritual experiences. I've raised my family well. I've attended church every Easter, every Christmas. No. Righteousness, it comes from Christ. It's a gift. It's not based on anything that we have done. It's based on Christ and his life. So that's the transfer. That's the transfer of Jesus' innocence. Third point. The receiving of Jesus' innocence. Jesus has transferred us his innocence. What does that actually mean for us? Three things. It means that the innocence we receive is continual. It's not just sin in the present that is forgiven. It's not just even that the sin in the past is forgiven, but that our sin from birth till death is forgiven. Because we inherit now Jesus' innocent life. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up in the church, I, I had this weird idea about how God's forgiveness worked. I, I don't know where I got this idea, but I kind of had in the, the idea in my mind that, uh, you know, I had I'd done a lot of bad things. I asked God to forgive me. All those sins in the past, forgiven. But then, a few weeks go by, I kind of need to renew up my forgiveness so that all those sins from that time until now could be forgiven. And then again, and again, and again, I had to keep asking for forgiveness so that all those sins could be forgiven. And it was kind of like if, if I ever jumped off a plane and my parachute didn't open and I was falling towards the ground, I would need to make sure before I hit the ground, I asked for God's forgiveness. Because if I didn't, those sins that I just committed in the last couple of days wouldn't be forgiven. But that's not how God's forgiveness works. Because he doesn't forgive you because you, you've asked enough times to cover the past ones. He says, when I forgive you, Jesus' life is yours, from birth to death, his perfect, innocent life. So, when we get to the end of the life, our life, God is not going to look at us and He's not going to judge us based on the things in our life. He will judge us and look at us based on Jesus' life. When we come to Him, we're going to have a paper, and you can hand Him. You can hand Him, "This is the record of my life, Jesus," or "God," or "This is the record of Jesus' life." You can choose. Is it your life that you're going to present or Jesus? (laughs) I know which one I choose. (laughs) So Jesus' life, or the innocence that we receive, sorry, is continual innocence. It covers all of our life. Secondly, though, the innocence that we receive is complete innocence. See, we are now seen completely as innocent by God. It's not that there is some big sin that God was not able to forgive. It's not that there was a sin left over that wasn't completely covered. It's not saying, hey, this, this sin, it's too much. I can't, I can't be ever forgiven of that. No, no, because it's not based on your, your life. It's based on Christ's life. And it, and it means that there's no sin you've done too much that can't be forgiven. See, your, your innocence when you come to God, it doesn't matter that it's been 20 times in the last month that you've committed the sin. He sees you with the righteousness of Jesus. So you can come boldly to him. There's no sin too big that's to forgiven and there's no thought that can't be forgiven. It's complete innocence because it's based on the innocence of Christ. And lastly, the innocence we receive then is certain. It's a certain innocence. There's no doubt. Just as Jesus was crucified, we know that we are innocent before God if we have trusted in him. God doesn't look at us this week and determine how well we've done He looks at Jesus. Our innocence is certain. The gavel has come down. The declaration is complete. The verdict has been decided. And there are no appeals. Our innocence is certain. Because if our our innocence is based somehow on us, if we need to approach God based on us, it's pretty uncertain. Our, our, Our life is ups and downs. There's good times and there's bad. There's times where we're following the Lord and times where we're not. But if our innocence is based on Christ, then we can approach God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ and his righteousness alone, we stand. But here's the thing. This is not actually true of you if you have not trusted in Christ. All the wonderful things that we've spoken of, of the the innocence and the, the guilt and the shame that's removed when we stand before God is not true if you have not trusted in Christ alone. It's only through Jesus and his death that we can actually approach God. So we need to trust in him. We need to transfer all of our trust and say, this is where I go. This is the the name that I will plead when I approach God. It's not me. It's not anything I've done, but only through Christ. And so lastly, one last application for us all. If we're here and we are Christian, we know that we are righteous because of Jesus. Then what should that mean for our life? Well, one thing it means is this. Your sin, it does not define you. Your sin doesn't define you anymore. Your good works don't define you either. You are defined in God's eyes purely on the basis of Jesus. So when you come to God, there's no shame. There's no guilt that you ought to feel. Because, because your life is based on Christ. Right? When, when you talk with other believers and other Christians, you don't have to feel ashamed of the sin you've done this week or last month or two years ago. Be, because that's not what defines you anymore. You aren't defined by your pride and your guilt and your greed and the way you treated your kids or your spouse. You're defined because Jesus has lived a perfect life and that in him is yours. First Peter 3.18 Says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The righteous dies for the unrighteous. Why? To bring us to God. That is the goal of Jesus' death on the cross. That is why we celebrate today, so that we can come to God and know that we are both guilty and loved at the same time. Not one or the other. We are guilty and loved at the same time. Because we come covered by the blood of Jesus. We don't have to prove anything to God. We don't need to do anything. We simply rest upon Christ. So I hope that the knowledge of Jesus' innocent life transferred unto us will help us, like the centurion, to praise God. Because, like the centurion, we should be able to say, certainly, that man was innocent. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your innocent life that you lived. You you lived it because we didn't live it. We we still don't live it. Every day, we fall short. And yet you came and you endured all those temptations and all those trials and eventually to the cross because of our own failures. So Lord, would would you help us to simply trust you? To trust that what you have done is now ours. Let us rejoice in that and may we praise you for all you've done for us. May this weekend be a great weekend of remembrance of your cross and your resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.